I got very close to him. I saw him for my required psychiatric evaluation. His conclusion was, no, I'm not a psychiatrist. Don't go into that. And there's some story behind that, which doesn't matter. But I was so impressed with his piety, and I was so impressed with his deep faith and his real trust in this fellow Jesus that I'd been spending all this time in my life trying to debunk. One day I came to him, and I said, uh, you know, since you are a Christian, and as I understood Christians at the time, and it's good enough for you, then it should be good enough for me. Mm. And his response was no. <laughs> he said, that's not how you become a believer. He said, you need to investigate your own Judaism. You have to go back to where your roots are from and learn that and see where that, where that journey takes you. Yo, King Kami's look out, tell him look out for my worldview. Cloudy when you sinking, got you thinking it's a whirlpool. Caesar in your pockets, you can't see who's in your pockets. Welcome but to the Stevie's Belfast inner podcast, the podcast dedicated to those deconstructing and reconstructing their faith. Today is a little different. Uh, for those of you who are watching the video, you will notice that this is not in my room or in my house. But uh, the uh, gentleman that I'm interviewing today graciously let me be in his house and do this in his house um it's a man that i've known her before i was born right that's correct okay um and there's a great reason i'm having him on today i think it will provide some great insight um but uh without further ado let me introduce peter greenspan Thank you, Luke. I appreciate your kind words. Oh, yeah. Um, it's. I feel like it's been a long time coming, at least in my head. I've wanted to uh, have this discussion with you for a while, and I figured it'd be great to record it. Um, my pleasure. So let's, I guess we'll do, uh, we'll do this first. So kind of how we know each other, how you know my family. We'll start there. In the mid-1980s, uh, I was... Uh, training to become an obstetrician gynecologist and your father, Mark, was training to become a family physician. So we met each other in that setting. Um, after I went into practice uh, in 1985 um, and, and your dad subsequently finished his training uh, and he was now married to uh, your mom, uh, she was pregnant with uh, twins and you were, of course, one of those twins. Um, there was some very grave life-threatening medical complications, which resulted in the need for you and your twin sister uh, to be born very prematurely. Uh, sadly, uh, she had uh, problems that did not allow for her to survive, but praise God, you were able to survive. And now I'm looking at this strapping young man who's very bright and uh, has done a wonderful uh, work for the kingdom in, in developing this podcast and and furthering uh, the message that this is about. Well, thank you. That, I'm flattered. <laughs> it's all true. It's uh, Well, it's an honor to be your friend. Um, Likewise. And <clears throat> so the reason that um, you're here today, or I guess I wanted to have you on so bad, is because uh, I think you'll provide a very interesting lens in the kind of general discussion that I'm trying to have on this podcast mm -hmm. uh, because kind of through osmosis um, with you and then through other people that we uh, thinkers that we find 
um, fascinating and have a, a liking towards. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had some very great conversations, but you actually didn't grow up as a Christian per se. No, not at all. Um, and so I guess for this episode, at least, uh, I wanted to just get your story because I haven't even heard it. I've never, I've heard bits and pieces here and there, but not the, uh, the full narrative. So, Mm uh, so let's just start at the beginning. I was born in, uh, New York city in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, people often tell others that they were raised in some locale. Uh, I tell people I was lowered in New York. (laughs) Um, seriously, uh, I was born into a, um, I was the second generation of a uh, Northern Eastern European Jewish family. Uh, my uh, grandparents on my, from my mother's side were from Minsk in that area of Belarus. And my father's family and his father were from Odessa, Russia on the Black Sea. Um, we would be characterized as being middle class. Um, if you want to talk about a label, we were what I would say were classic East Coast establishment liberal Jews, Um, (laughs) not religious in any fashion, but we were traditional and ethnic and participated in the rituals of Judaism without really having an interest in God per se. Um, When I was about two or three years old, the story goes, I asked my father um, if God had a first name and... um, my sister, who's two and a half years older than me at the time, and still is, uh, <laughs> piped in that uh, his first name is Life, Lifeguard, <laughs> which is telling, actually, and it's kind of, what's the word, prophetic. My father's answer to me specifically was Rabbi. His name was Rabbi God. That's all. That was the beginning of my understanding about that. But all throughout growing uh, up in Brooklyn and um, education and everything else, um, we were, uh, like I said, uh, secular, but ethnically very involved in the Jewish community. I lived in probably then the highest concentration of Jewish people per square mile in the entire world in a neighborhood collectively called Flatbush, which is several different neighborhoods. But there were a few uh, non-Jewish people there um, uh, to interact with, uh, a few Catholics, but uh, otherwise uh, very, very little um, exposure to non-Jewish people. There were Holocaust survivors all around. You frequently took for granted even that your neighbor had seven numbers tattooed on their forearm or uh, that the kid you played stickball with in the street, that his mother was at Auschwitz, this kind of thing. It it was just normal when we were growing up. Um, And then the question of uh, Jesus and Christianity, et cetera, uh, we were... um, certainly tolerant. Everybody got along pretty well. Some of my closest friends belonged to uh, well, or attended the uh, uh, local parish school uh, called uh, Holy Innocence. Um, we call them holy idiots. But <laughs> anyway, uh, but again, I mean, the stuff that we squabbled over was not about Jewish versus Christian or Catholic. Uh, there was an occasional Christ killer comment, but most of us just took it in stride. You know, we didn't get all excited about that. Um, I did have some Christian people in my life that were influential. Um, most notably, um, 
my uh, family uh, had a housekeeper whose name was Ethel Rogers, um, and she was a Southern woman who uh, uh, obviously moved to New York City to work and raise a family. Um, and uh, Ethel was was essentially my surrogate mother because my own mother was physically uh, ill for most of my life and actually died when I was 20. So um, Ethel was a major part of my upbringing. She never directly tried to witness to me or, or any kind of thing like that, but uh, she knew what her boundaries were. But she certainly gave me an example of, uh, of that witness of uh, living uh, for God and for doing good, et cetera. Also, my own father um, was raised in a peculiar situation. His father, um, my grandfather, whose name was George in America, but his name was Gershon, Gershon Greenspan uh, from Odessa, um, was a very wealthy and influential fellow. And he was married to my father's mother, whose name was Irene Shawl. Um, and we've come to find out that they were probably first cousins. And there's some questions there about how that relationship got started, perhaps with the pregnancy of my father's older brother. But to make a long story short, when my dad was three years old, his family broke up, his mother and father divorced. And very uncharacteristically for those days, he, George, was able to obtain custody. And I think that's because he had political influence, et cetera. So he had the custody of these two boys, George, uh, my father, Reynolds, and his older brother, Murray. And uh, it turns out that they lived in Ocean Parkway, on Ocean Parkway in Brooklyn, a very famous thoroughfare. And in the apartment building was a uh, Gentile woman who was from Florida, whose name was Zaina. And uh, this woman, Zaina, was a dental hygienist um, who ended up uh, marrying a fellow named Tom Daniels, who was a first-generation American-Italian immigrant. The uh, name was changed from Danielli. And Tom and uh, Zaina never had children of their own, but the point is that she converted to Catholicism from a Protestant uh, uh, denomination. I don't even know what, which one it was. And as often is the case with converts, she became extremely religious and pious, etc. But she took my father in. She basically made sure he got his teeth brushed, made sure he got his hair cut, and kept him, you know, out of trouble, if you will. Uh, the other brother, Murray, he didn't like her very much. He sort of rejected her. He went his own way. But my father was essentially raised by this surrogate named Zaina, who then later married and became Zaina Daniels. And then when I started developing consciousness, that was my father's parents. I didn't know any different. I knew this woman, Irene Shawl. I met her a few times, but I didn't have much to do with her. And I actually met my father's father. When I, the first time when I was about 15 and saw him maybe one more time since, and then he passed away and I, have no, nothing, I know nothing about him to speak of. Back to the story, though, uh, Zaina and her husband were uh, very, very gracious, wonderful people. They, they all lived like an Italian family would with all the brothers and sisters and mama in the one house in Brooklyn, and they all had their own little separate spaces. There were um, two brothers. Uh, Tom had a brother named Mickey. Uh, Mickey was married to a woman named Frances. There was a sister named Carrie who wasn't uh, married. Um, and uh, they all lived with Mama in this one large house in Brooklyn. And that became basically my grandparent experience with my father's side of the family. Now, they, the Daniels, <laughs> celebrated all the, you know, 
major Christian holidays, obviously Christmas and Easter, and they included us in all of it. It was purely a secular experience. There was nothing religious poured into it. But I was, you know, I mean, I was the lucky guy. I was the Jewish kid that got that Christmas, you know, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, but it didn't influence us religiously, and it just never even occurred to me. As a matter of fact, I didn't really understand this whole relationship until I was about 12 years old or so, maybe older, because I just never put two and two together. And by the way, we, we, we called her and her husband aunt and uncle. So Aunt Zaina and Uncle Tom. Tom died when I was five years old, and his brother Mickey died shortly thereafter. They both had heart attacks. And so for the rest of my life growing up in Brooklyn, I knew Francis, the sister, and Zaina and Carrie. What does that have to do with anything? You know, they just, they were believers, I would think, it seemed to me. And uh, that, thus we had some real understanding and exposure to a culture, which, if, which Catholicism is. It's an ism, like Judaism, et cetera. And um, didn't give it much thought, really. But finally... In 1972, I went off to college and I started having interactions with people uh, who wanted to share the gospel with me. I was in the dormitory at UMKC where I went, went to undergraduate school for probably about three hours, something like that, when a fellow, a uh, young man, uh, also a student there, came in the room with an open Bible to tell me all about the good news of Jesus Christ. I was a little surprised and overwhelmed, but I was polite. Jehovah's Witness? <laughs> no, actually, he was a true, I think he was a true evangelical, a born-again Christian. And he was uh, very nice, very polite, and I listened and nodded my head. And basically, at the end of that conversation, I summed up what a typical Jewish response would be, and that is, well, that's your God, and that's your thing, your Gentile God, and, you know, I'm glad you're happy, and go in peace, and uh, I'm not interested, thank you, but it was very nice to meet you, and we were friends. We stayed friends. There was no problem. He lived right across the hall from me in the dorm. <laughs> Hard to miss each other, you know. Um, but that was one of the first encounters. And then these started cropping up fairly often. This was in the early days, 1970s, 1972, of the so-called Jesus movement or the Jesus freak movement, post-hippie. Uh, people were, you know, dealing with the end of the Vietnam War and all over the place with these Bible-toting people trying to get your attention to teach you about the good news, etc. So I had multiple encounters, and I got close to certain individuals that um, would, I would say were impactful, but I still remained resistant. However, by the end of college, I was at least interested in trying to prove them wrong. I felt at that point I had enough education to be able to examine these claims and decide for myself, and thus convince them as well, that he is not, this Jesus is not the Messiah of Israel. He does not fit the ticket, in other words. And I started embarking on that. And that led to a 16 or so year journey forward into encountering this Messiah, this man, and deciding whether or not he really is who he says he is. Because that's the quintessential question. You know, we can talk all day long about theology and about, you know, this or that, Calvinism or any number of other theories, reform versus, you know, dispensationalism and all that's fine. Very interesting. But the essential question, is he or is he not who he says he is? Is he the Messiah of Israel? Uh, now I would tell you that if he is, then we must follow him. If he's not, it doesn't matter. Everything doesn't matter at that point. But we'll address that later. So many years went by, uh, very interested in this what, subject. So uh, 
what was like the, was there a certain tipping point for you being like, I want to prove them wrong? Was there a certain interaction or like a number of interactions that you were like, okay, I've had enough of them trying to <laughs> convince me of this thing. Yeah. Uh, Great question. Now I'm going to, you know, take it into my own hands and actually look into it. I think, um, you know, uh, I would say that my general uh, approach to this thinking is one is, is driven by curiosity, and I want to find out what best I can what the evidence shows about anything. But in this particular case, you know, I was you know uh, thinking and mistakenly that I could convince all these people who were being deluded into believing in this guy that you know there's ways to show evidence that he's not who he says he is, and that that by the way, is attended with a huge amount of literature written in the non-Christian world that tries to debunk Jesus. There's tons of stuff written about him and um, by, by Jewish and Gentile sources. Uh, there's a, uh, a very well-known late uh, rabbi named Samuel Sandmel, S-A-N-D-M-E-L, uh, who was at the Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati, who wrote extensively about Jesus. He was very kind to the Christians. He was very, you know, admi admired their faith and everything, but he wrote extensively numerous books saying he cannot be the Messiah. He cannot be who he says he is. And, and, and his stuff is convincing. It's very good actually, but of course wrong, <laughs> obviously. So yeah, so, so the years went by, and then in medical school, um, I was encountering um, the same thing. We had what they called the God Squads. Those were the you know medical students that congregated together and had their little cr cross on their lapel and this kind of thing on their lab coat. And uh, you know, they didn't bother me. I didn't bother them. But you know, there was discussions. People would ask me questions about you know, oh, you're Jewish. Well, did you know that Jesus was Jewish? And I, whatever, you know. Uh, but then I ended up um, interested, I ended up expressing an interest in becoming a psychiatrist. And um, I don't know what it's like nowadays, but in those days, you know, we're 40 years ago now, more or more, we're talking about, um, well, yeah, 1975, I was there, and this is around 1977 or so. So very close to, um, uh, what is that? That's uh, how many years? I can't do the math in my head fast enough. Uh, the person who expressed interest in becoming a psychiatrist would have to see a psychiatrist, actually get an appointment and have sessions with another with a real psychiatrist and have them evaluate you and then determine whether they thought you'd be a good candidate for a psychiatry residency. So I went to the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at my medical school in Chicago, who actually happened to be the residency director, the program director for the state of Illinois psychiatric residency programs. What better person to go to than that? His name was John Cecil Lee. That was his American name. His name was Johann Cecil Lehimsky, and he was living under sovereign protection of the United States government because he was deemed a war criminal by the Russian uh, the Soviet Republic because of his involvement as a partisan in the Polish army during World War II. Dr. Lee was amazing on many levels. Um, he was very, very pious, very religious, and very strong Catholic. Um, and again, I, I'm not discussing Catholicism here. I'm just talking about the fact that he uh, was a deeply spiritual man. 
he, he had an experience, uh, which uh, I would consider pretty harrowing. He was apprehended by the Nazis, the Gestapo, and they were looking for this fellow named Lehimsky. And it was him. But they thought they had somebody else. It was a mistaken identity. They tortured him. They did all kinds of terrible things to the man. And he spent 11 months in Spandau, which if you go to the search engine and look up, was a horrible Nazi prison, which is now a tourist attraction in Berlin, I think, wherever it is. And he was in Spandau for a long time. But again, it was a mistaken identity. They had him. They just thought he was somebody else. And they were torturing him to give him up. You know what I'm saying? There was a guard that took care of, uh, that was a, a prison guard um, who during the day uh, acted like a prison guard, a brutal sadist, uh, someone who would beat people, kick them, you know, spit on them, all kinds of horrible things. And then when the sun went down, this same man would sneak into the prison. He knew how to get in there and bring these prisoners food and blankets and other comforts because he was actually a sympathizer. He acted bad in the day, but he really was a sympathizer. And that's what kept him alive. He was very bored because he's in prison, obviously. And the only thing that this fellow could bring to him to read were Bibles in different languages. So in the course of time, he became basically a Bible scholar, reading the Bibles in Russian or in Polish or in any Slavic language he could get his hands on, whatever it was. And so uh, this further imp uh, built up his faith as a Catholic. Uh, the war ended. He was uh, alive. He was uh, taken up by the Nuremberg people from the United States uh, military court uh, to actually interrogate as a psychiatrist the, the war criminals, Eichmann and people like that. Not Eichmann, I'm sorry. Um, other, you know, others, you know, Himmler, whoever they, whoever they caught, I don't know. It doesn't matter. And um, uh, so then he was granted sovereign immunity to live in the United States because even though he was with the allies, the Russians was, was supposed to be our allies, but he was involved in blowing up munitions dumps and, um, you know, attacking positions of the Russians. And that was considered a war crime to them. So they wanted him to be tried for war crimes. So he lived in the United States in Chicago and, uh, that was how his story went. I got very close to him. I saw him for my required psychiatric evaluation. His conclusion was, no, I'm not a psychiatrist. Don't go into that. And there's some story behind that, which doesn't matter. But I was so impressed with his piety. And I was so impressed with his deep faith and his real trust in this fellow Jesus that I'd been spending all this time in my life trying to debunk. One day I came to him and I said, uh, you know, since you are a Christian, and as I understood Christians at the time, and it's good enough for you, then it should be good enough for me. Mm. And his response was no. He said, that's not how you become a believer. He said, you need to investigate your own Judaism. You have to go back to where your roots are from and learn that and see where that, where that journey takes you. And then taking it into account his advice, I pondered the idea, took a vacation for Christmas break, something like that in 1979, I'd say it was, 78 or so, come back from Christmas vacation. Remember, there's no internet, there's no cell phones, there's no texting, nothing like that, no email. Come back from Christmas vacation, he has died, and he's been buried. Very devastating for a lot of people. But life goes on, you know, uh, sure missed him. 
but I remembered what he told me. He said, go back to Judaism. So I reached for the only book I had in my possession that had anything to do with Judaism, which was a book that my parents received from the rabbi that married them. The book is titled The Jew and His World. Uh, rabbi Hel uh, Heller was his name. And I thought that maybe that would have the mourner's prayer in it. And it turns out that uh, it didn't have the mourner's prayer in it, actually. But it was a book about the history and philosophy of the Jews. And it overtook me. So long story longer, that sent me into the journey that I started out on to become Jewish. to re Not just the ethnic stuff, not just the cultural, but I wanted to learn about Judaism and become Jewish. And so in a matter of time, um, within a year or so, I was essentially an Orthodox Jew. I was keeping kosher. I was observing the Sabbath. I had learned Hebrew. I was taught some Hebrew, and I was able to learn to read it. Not very good at it, but I was able to get by. And started attending synagogue services, fellowshipping in, in that same format with other Jewish people. And uh, all the while, I'm still in the back of my mind trying to debunk this Jesus, whoever he is, and uh, be able to prove to everybody that he's just not who he says he is. Years pass, life events take place, marriage, the, the birth of children, etc. And then I was uh, in 1984. So now we're talking about since Dr. Lee, uh, you know, six or seven years have gone by where I'm living like an Orthodox Jew, you know, struggling over avoiding pork lo mein, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, you understand. Um, so... Uh, then I, I got divorced. It was very difficult, of course, with little so, kids. Uh, okay. Let me... Uh, Am I going too long here? No, 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 no. You're fine. I just... there's You hit on something interesting that I want to backtrack on a little bit. So, uh, when what, what was the doctor's name? Dr. Lee. Lee. Dr. Lee. When, uh, when you... There's two things I find very interesting. So, in your admission of like interest in Christianity. It wasn't that he necessarily like philosophically or even in terms of like evidence of historic historical Jesus like proved you wrong. It was that he was such a faithful man that you were kind of won over by his example. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Like I said, I, I, I remember telling him, if it's good enough for you, it's good enough for me. Yeah. And, and his so, response was, la he laughed. He started laughing. Yeah. And I I think that's a lot of, you know, when you talk to a lot of people, it isn't that somebody, you know, proved me right in a debate. It's that these people lived as if Christians and I realized that Yeah. I, I wanted a part of it. I agree and with so that. so similar with you. Um, which I think gives a lot of credence to that kind of uh, conversion. But I also find his answer something that you wouldn't expect at all. He was full of answers that you wouldn't expect. That's exactly, <laughs> and I want to tell you if I could go ahead yeah, and finish but, your but, point. So that's my observation was that you were won over by, not by his intellect, yes. but his example. Right. Um, which is a profound thing, but also that his response was not, don't just accept it because of me, but precisely take it upon yourself. And even encouraging you not, not to uh, 
just become a Christian, but go back and understand your Jewishness yes. before that is you correct. take on Christianity. Exactly. And I think that uh, as, as a Gentile, it's been, and I've made videos about this and such, it's kind of been the opposite for me, right? Like I've understood my Christianness a lot, but I've, and I found a lot of fruit in it and going back and understanding the Jewishness, if I can say, of like my faith or at least of mm -hmm. the predecessors in the faith. You know, does that make sense? Absolutely. So sense. Right. I think that that's... You're hitting the nail on the head. I think that's been largely... I think it's been one of the most beneficial things I've ever done. And um, maybe we can have another conversation about the new perspective and different yeah, things yeah. like that. Sure. But um, I just, I don't know, I can't, I, and I've heard other stories about how pastors and, and certain churches will, when someone expresses interest in, in following Jesus, they will say, well, we want you to know what you're getting into before you sure. go on, which is like back to what Jesus said about who um, goes to battle without, you know, counting his men, who who builds a house without sitting down to figure out if you can right. finish it first. Uh, you cost. have to count the cost if you're going to pick up your cross. Exactly. Right. right. Um, and they will say, well, we want you to go to a class for at least a week and just to know what it's going to take just to get an overview right. of right. what is it to be a Christian. Sure. And so at the Actually, end of that week, they'll ask, do you still want to be a Christian? Right. And I find things like that. When you read that, I'm like, it's, they got they've got something that at Absolutely. least the the modern evangelical Protestant wing doesn't necessarily yeah. seem to grasp. Um but yeah, so that's pretty good. That's so right. I guess uh in my experience of having the kind of a reverse, um, hearing him say, understand your Jewishness before you right. take on Christianity. So yeah, go go on with uh more of like how that because you became a practicing pretty orthodox Jew. Yes. Oh, seriously. So, yeah, very serious for years. Uh-huh. Um, exactly. So how, I guess... Had that go forward? Yeah, kind of explain more detail how that... Well, I, I mean, uh, if you need to edit it out, that's fine. But I, I want to take a moment to just give you one little vignette because you, you struck on a point about Dr. Lee and his influence. And you said that he said something that was not the typical response. You know, it's mm -hmm. not like... You know, like the, the kids from Campus Crusade and everything, you know, the second you say something like that, they're all over you like white on rice. You know, they want to have you, uh, you know, say that prayer that I repent and all this. He's not, his response was completely different. He says, go and, go and find Judaism. Um, and, and I mentioned, I quipped that he was full of these little, mm -hmm. you know, kind of little st pithy statements that he would make that would make you think about something. And I want to tell this just one thing. Uh, to say he was brilliant is way beyond, you know, obviously he was brilliant, but <laughs> uh, he was calculating. In other words, he was a psychiatrist and he was very careful. He knew what he was doing. He knew about personalities. He knew about people's thought processes and their weaknesses and things like that. But oftentimes he had a, he had a memory that was incredibly sharp and he would say something. And I, after my 10 sessions or whatever, I continued to see him for a couple of years as a patient, if you will. Of, you know, just to have a chance to talk to him once a week or two, every couple of weeks. And plus, I, I had a reason to visit him because he had problems with his uh, 
shoulders and hands because of his torture. And I was doing osteopathic medicine fellowship at the time. So I actually, in the classic psychiatric sense of transference, not necessarily truly the case here, but he became my patient. I would go to him so I would treat him and rub his shoulders and work with his fingers and, and his hands because of all the problems he had. And that made us further know each other. And also he had become a recent widower because his wife, Regina, his wife, Regina, who he called Regina, of course, had just died. And he was a widow, widower and uh, very um, lost, if you will, as would be the case with anybody that loses a loved one. And as much as he'd spend his time in war and in medicine around death and dying, he had no real personal experience to really draw upon. And remember, my mother had died just before I started medical school. So now he's asking me to basically be his therapist in reverse. That's the transference. To, so he could talk about Regina and about his loss and everything else. In one of the conversations of many we had, um, and he would do this all the time. You know, he would, he would remind me of something I said 10 months ago. He had this memory. He would just, you know, I couldn't believe he remembered I said this one little minor comment and all of a sudden he brings it up. Uh, and he would also do things which was intentional. Obviously, I didn't know it at the time, but he would try to stimulate the person, me or the other. Uh, he had a lot of people who followed him with him in discipleship role like I did. He would uh, act like he couldn't remember, you know, the title of a book or a movie. He, he did. <laughs> he just wouldn't tell you. You know what I'm saying? He'd make you find out. Okay. So in one conversation, he told me about a very interesting book of essays. And he said, I know uh, he's like, you know, rubbing his head. Um, oh, it was by Kaufman. And uh, it was three words. It was uh, religion and existentialism. And I don't remember, you know, he knew exactly who it was, but he wouldn't tell me. When he died. And like I told you, I reached for a book. Um, I was, you know, I was mourning the loss of a dear person to me, but it turns out it was Super Bowl Sunday weekend or something like that in Chicago. And uh, we needed to get a, a rabbit ear antenna for our television. And um, I went up the block in Chicago on uh, Lincoln Avenue to a appliance store that sold those kind of things. And right there was a brand new bookstore that just opened up brand new. Love bookstores to this day. I still love bookstores. And I had to go in and check it out. There was nobody in there but this person at the desk, the clerk, brand, spanking brand new, cleaning, shiny. And I'm just wandering through the various bookcases, looking at what's out there. And I'm getting my way over towards the religion and philosophy section. And there's all these beautiful, neat books that are all stacked exactly perfect. And there's this book sticking out about this far, two inches, three inches, okay? Just sticking out. And I see it says like, R-E-L, and I can see EX. So I walk over and I pull this book out and it's Religion, Existentialism and Death by Walter Kaufman. I can show it to you, I have it right here. I mean, my little bit of hair just stood on end like it did at that very moment. What that means, I'm not making any inferences, I'm just telling you how wild would that be that I would find this book he mentioned, you know, a year ago probably. Anyway, back to the more, the, the, the testimony was that um, I graduated from medical school. I, I came here to do my residency at Truman, uh, still searching and trying to debunk Jesus, uh, trying to live as a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, which was challenging, obviously, 
I mean, how do you eat at the hospital? There's no kosher food. You have to bring your food with you, you know, this kind of thing. But um, that marriage uh, dissolved. My wife uh, at the time um, didn't want to stay married. And so uh, in the um, uh, end of the third year of my residency, she wanted to get divorced. And so that resulted in exactly that happening and all of the attendant problems that that uh, you know, brings with it with children, et cetera, and so forth. And I finished my residency program. Now I'm divorced and I'm kind of getting less and less orthodox. I'm, I'm losing my grip, if you will, on this orthodox religion, this orthodox Judaism. It's just more difficult every day. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm discouraged and I'm heartbroken and one thing or the other. But then shortly after I started working in Independence, Missouri, at the hospital there, I met a nurse in the operating room named Kim. And I thought that she was magnificent and beautiful, and I wanted to get to know her. So through one circumstance or another, we got to start to become friends, at least with each other. And the thing, the thing I find out right away uh, by visiting her home is that this young lady is uh, very Christian, apparently. You know, there's crosses all over the place, and there's a Bible every three feet, you know, and there's all kinds of other trappings of a Christian home. Mm -hmm. But of course, remember, I like to argue about this. So, you know, here I am engaging her about why do you believe in this, you know, false, whatever, Messiah. <laughs> and like other people who would typically engage in the conversation, she would have none of it. She would not, none of it. She would simply just listen to me and nod her head and say, I'm telling you, he's God, he's the Messiah. And, uh, you know, whatever you're telling me, it's like bouncing off of a you know wall. Doesn't mean a thing to her. Not wouldn't budge. Nothing. So as the relationship developed into a more serious relationship, I started going to church with her at a Lutheran church in Blue Springs. And she had a pastor. The pastor there was a person she knew for where she from where she grew up in Rolla, Missouri, and that used to babysit his children, actually. And he was now assigned to this church in Blue Springs, Timothy Lutheran Church. And I would go and week after week after week, I would sit at the edge of my seat waiting for him to say some disparaging remark about the Jews or something anti-Semitic or something bad or something. He never said a word like that. All he talked about was this thing called grace and about forgiveness and love and all this wonderful stuff. And I just thought, you know, okay, I guess he's not going to be able to get me to uh, pounce on him for anything like you know, Martin Luther was a classic at the Semite, you know, and all this other stuff. Um, but then we we're blessed to have our firstborn in utero, as we say in the business. Our little embryo is, we called her Jewel for being a Jewish Lutheran. And um, she's getting along in her pregnancy. And at that very same time in 1988, this movie came out from Hollywood, which was called The Last Temptation of Christ. Mm -hmm. I'm not the Scorsese flick, right? I'm sorry, the Scorsese flick. It was, it was, it was mm -hmm. directed and I believe produced by William Scorsese. I cannot recommend it. It's blasphemous trash, but you know God can use things. You know that uh, he can get a donkey to talk. So it turns out that um, I was very interested in the debate that was being caused. There was lots and lots of very vigorous, you know, emotional debate between different sides of the equation. And, you know, this is uh, this is the Jews in Hollywood are trying to defame Jesus, you know, or, you know, the Christians are trying to take over the world, you know, whatever the argument was. Well, I mean, the movie, I hadn't even seen it, but I knew it was a book. As a matter of fact, the author, Kazantzakis, Nikos Kazantzakis, got the Nobel Prize for Literature. I don't know if it was for that book, but he 
you know, lived in the twenties, I think or thirties. And, um, I found a copy, an English copy of the book, The Last Temptation of Christ, and I read it. Um, and again, I'm not going to recommend it. <laughs> it's just, you know, you got to be careful here. However, this book addressed a question which I was not able to get addressed in all the other thoughts and research I had done into this subject. The Jewish premise, which is obviously incorrect, the, the, the standard rabbinical Jewish premise is that Man cannot become God. I'm not disagreeing with that. They don't address the other, the corollary. Can God become a man? Oh, you see, they don't address that. So all of a sudden, this book turned on my light bulb, which made it made me understand never before, as all these years have passed, 16 or so years have gone by now, that yeah, well, wait a minute. God can become anything God wants to become. I believe in God. That's not the problem. I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's fine. But can that God become a man? And then you have this character in this man's story, and uh, it really profoundly affected me. It just, it was like, huh. And then I started rethinking all of the, the uh, what's the word, uh, the evidence, quote unquote, from Josh McDowell or from somebody else or from any other book about who this Jesus is. And now I can understand him not as this false Messiah who thinks he's God, but the other way around. He's God who has come to earth in flesh, suffers immeasurably in flesh so that he can do something that none of us can do for ourselves, redeem us from our sin. I was really you know, shook up, I guess you could say, or a little emotional about all this. But remember, Kim is about to give birth. <laughs> so October 4th uh, is our anniversary. And uh, then just a few uh, days later, on October 12th, our daughter Lauren is brought into the world. And when I saw this beautiful baby, I said out loud, thank you, Jesus. And then I looked over my shoulder. <laughs> like, Who said that? You know? Uh, anyway, after everything settled down and I had some time to talk privately with Kim, you know, what was that about? You know, what's this whole thing with thank you, Jesus, you know? And I said, I, I don't know. I'm, 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 I'm feeling like I think he's who he says he is. I think he's the Messiah of Israel. So she told me, at, at, you know, we talked about obviously. And then uh, the question of getting baptized came into the picture and I was completely confused. I didn't know what to do next. You know, I mean, it was like, uh, you know, what am I supposed to do now? And this kind of thing. Lauren gets to be a month or so old or whatever she is, goes to, you know, the typical Lutheran ceremony of infant baptism, which is another podcast. <laughs> and uh, anyway, um, so I make an appointment. I call up this Francis Lieb, who's this fellow I've been listening to for a couple of years now. And I said, I want to talk to you. Now, to my knowledge, he had no idea that I was going to come to tell him this. It was, this was nothing that anybody else knew about. So if he found out, I, I, he never let on. But I went to see him. It was around the 4th of December of that year. And Lauren was just a couple of months old. And I sat down and I told him, I said, you know, Pastor Lieb, I have come to the conclusion that I believe that he, Jesus. He was the pastor of the church. Yes. Okay. And I said, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel and God. And another one of these like wacky, like almost mystical experiences. On his right behind him is about a four drawer filing cabinet. The second of the two of the top two drawers is open about this far. 
Okay. He's not even looking. He's looking at me. He reaches back, grabs something from this cabinet, pulls out a stack in a file of about four inches worth of paperwork. He hands it to me. It's in chronological order, most recent to the last of newsletters from the Jews for Jesus organization. It's the November 1988 newsletter right there on the top. The Jews for Jesus founder, who's now in the kingdom of heaven, whose name was Marty, his name was Marty Rosen. He went by Moshe, which was his Hebrew name, Moshe Rosen, always wrote a piece for every newsletter while he was alive and in charge. And uh, on the surface, the very front page of this November um, newsletter is an exposition on Luke 2, where the famous uh, scripture, you know, behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, for unto you this day is born a Savior in Bethlehem, Christ our Lord. And I'm reading this right there in his office, and I get to the last line. And the last line is this, in classical Moshe Rosen fashion. You know, Gabriel announces to the shepherds, you know, behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, for unto you this day is born a Savior, you know, Christ the Lord. And then the next sentence and he wasn't talking to Gentiles. Mm. Luke, you know, if somebody had hit me with a fist, it would have been less of a strike to my face than just this line. He was not talking to Gentiles. Because my problem was, how do I believe in this and then become reconciled with Jewishness or with Judaism or with my history and my heritage? Mm. You know, I knew there were other people who claimed to be Jewish believers. You know, we, I thought they were just current converts to Baptist theology. I, I, you know, I didn't understand anything. Really, I had a cousin. I had a cousin for years. Was a you know one of these Jesus freaks who drove us nuts. You know, she was like a fundamentalist Baptist or something. We couldn't figure her out. And now all of a sudden, I've got to get in touch with this cousin and start talking to her. I don't know what to do next. But here I have something to go by. You know, and this Gentile Christian pastor, I mean a doctrinaire Lutheran, I'd say shepherded me into an understanding of how you reconcile that you are culturally and ethnically Jewish. You believe in the Messiah of Israel. doesn't change a thing about being Jewish. Use the term convert. I don't mind the term convert. I'm, I'm, I'm well with it. But here's the point. I didn't convert to anything. I just became a believer that completed my understanding of what my faith is in the one true God, mm. that he does have a Messiah whose name is Yeshua, Jesus, and that this Messiah came to the Jewish people, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but he also unlocked the door for everyone to be able, and then goes on further in the scripture to describe in, through the Pauline letters, there is no Jew or Greek in Jesus. There is no male or female, slave or freeborn, or any number of things. So that was the beginning of that part of that journey. And on the Christmas day of 1988, in front of the congregation, I got baptized um, wow. with the Lutheran technique of sprinkling, you know, pouring water on my head. Uh, subsequently, I went to a, an immersion baptism at Lee Summit Community Church because my wife, who was baptized as an infant and had no doubt about her faith and no question at all that she's saved and all that, but she felt that she wanted to experience immersion. And I said, I'll go along with you. Why not? So in front of the congregation, we, again, uh, uh, confessed faith that, you know, Yeshua is the Messiah and he's part of the triune Godhead. And we all got immersed and it was a fun day. So I guess that brings us up to date. That That's kind of the testimony that one would find. Um, it, it, this isn't a shameless plug, but 
it was published actually in a Jews for Jesus book, which is called uh, Jewish Doctors Meet the Great Physician. And it's, mm. uh, it's public <laughs> domain. You can get it online. Uh, the PDF is online. You don't what a great that. title. Right. And uh, I was very blessed and honored to be included in that. The story there quickly was that uh, um, I, as, I, as I was growing and early, I mean, I was very, very infant at that point, but still, you know, learning and walking and meeting people. And, you know, some of the experiences were great. Some of them weren't so great. Um, you know, uh, but, but it turned out that uh, somehow or the other, there was a call. I guess Jews for Jesus sent out a letter, a newsletter or something or, that was asking for Jewish physicians to give their testimonies and they would select some of them for the purpose of a book. So I wrote something up, you know, and I threw it. It was, and by then there was email. So I could send it by email. And uh, to my surprise, they selected it as a final, one of the finalists. And uh, actually, uh, I got the word from uh, Cecile Rosen, his daughter, Cecile, Cecilia Rosen, uh, that in fact they had selected it. And I was really honored. I mean, I was overwhelmed. I couldn't believe it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they did that, they did editorial things and they made sure that the grammar was correct and all the words were spelled right. And, you know, and they did some fact checking and whatever they had to do. And, uh, then they published it. And of course, when they did so, I signed the copyright paperwork, which meant, you know, it always says in the beginning of every book, you know, it says somewhere you cannot copy, you know, you can't copy or reproduce any of this without the express permission of the author. Yeah. I couldn't take my own testimony and Xerox it <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't have the copyright anymore. And then I come to find out a couple of years later, a patient of mine calls me up who knew I was a believer, all excited. She goes, you know, she goes, when did you meet Lee Strobel? I said, I've never met Lee Strobel. I don't even know who Lee Strobel is. <laughs> she goes, well, 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 he quoted you in his book. I said, what? What book? She goes, it's the case for Christ by this guy named Lee Strobel. I said, I, know, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea. I literally I had no idea. When I got off of work that day, I went over to the old family bookstore that used to be at Independence Center over here. And I'm trying to look casual, you know, and trying to be like cool. But I'm wandering around and I find a copy of this book and I'm trying to look around like nobody, you know, and I'm kind of going through it. You know, in the old cartoons, like yeah, when somebody sees something and their eyes pop out, it's, it's like, I found it. I was like, and Peter Greenspan said, and I went, what? <laughs> <laughs> it didn't matter if he knew me or not because he had the copyright permission. Yeah. From the testimony, you know, and to this day, people ask me, they say, you know, what was it like meeting Lee Strobel? I go, I don't know what it's like. I never met him, never talked to him ever. So it's just an ironic little crazy story, but I just thought you'd get a kick out of that. So anyway, that's my uh, testimony. Uh, Long-winded, but um, there's some more details in the actual story if you read it in the book. All right. Well. It's a that pleasure to hear it. No, it's great. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad we we're able to do this. So, something that I, I want to start doing with uh, more of the guests that I have on. Um, actually, I think this will be a good, uh, maybe closer question before we get to a maybe a fun thing for the audience. Uh, what would be your so if there's any person who's listening to this or happens to listen to this who who is Jewish or Messianic Jew, what would be your recommendation to them as far as uh, wrestling with Jesus or or any of that? What, if you could give them like a piece of advice, what would it be? 
Yes, that's a very compelling question. Um, okay, that Jewish person who is going to want to wrestle with the question of Jesus has to take all the baggage that they're carrying and just for the moment put it down. Put down the Holocaust, put down the terrible things that happened to Jews by so-called Christians. We'll get to that later. But for right now, put the baggage down. Read the book of John, start to finish. Don't stop, don't look anything up. Just read John's gospel. And after you've gone through it, then start parsing through the chapters and start writing down your questions and start asking a reliable friend or someone who you can consult with or use the internet with great discretion because the internet's full of a lot of nonsense, of course. But I think the point in this case is keep the baggage aside. We'll address the questions later. You know, the classical response from anybody that you witness to is, well, what about that guy on some island in the Pacific? Hey, I'm worried about that guy. But right now you and I are talking about Jesus, not that guy. We'll get to him later. Maybe we'll go do it. Maybe you and I will get the money and fly out there and talk to him. But for right now, I'm compelling you to respond to Jesus. You know, here's the information we have about him. Here's the historical facts. Here's the written record, you know, 23,000 copies of the New Testament. I mean, you know, uh, Homer's Odyssey, for example. Uh, how many original manuscripts do they have of that? 60? Nobody questions it. But everybody questions the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter, whatever. So I think, you know, to answer the question, put down the baggage, read the Gospel of John to start with, through and through. Not that long. You can do it in a little while. And then you can go back and start parsing and start asking questions and underlining. And, and you know, there are reasonable questions there. You can read it and you can say, this is an anti-Semitic trope. I, hear, I understand that. But maybe you should read the Jewish, you know, version, like uh, the complete Jewish Bible version or other similar types of versions, which are de-Gentilized and not causing offense. You know, how many times I've been told, oh, before and since, and, and to this very minute, the New Testament is just an anti-Semitic screed. Uh, no, the New Testament was entirely written by Jews, Messianic Jews, and maybe Luke wasn't, but that doesn't matter. Okay, whether, whether he was or wasn't doesn't matter. But let's just understand now that how it has been translated and transmitted can be read anti-Semitically. All the problems with the Pharisees and all the, you know, the synagogue of Satan comment. Now, that requires study. You have to study that to understand all that stuff. Like my position, for example, on the Pharisees. They're painted as being just these terrible, scheming, bad people. Maybe they were. I don't know. But that's not what the Pharisees were in general. The Pharisees were scholars of Judaism who lived a certain type of religious life. That's all they knew. Of course, they were going to bring into question some of the things that this fellow said. It was against what they were used to, what all they knew. So look at the Pharisees a little differently, and all of a sudden, they're not these bad people necessarily. They just didn't know any better. And plus, you have Pharisees that become true believers that change the world. You know, you have, um, you know, Nick at night, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Nicodemus and others, you know, what... Uh, what was the fellow from uh, Cyrene? Uh, uh, wasn't he? I forget his name. Goodness, my brain. Um, the tomb. The fellow that donated his tomb. Oh, Judas? No, that wasn't. Oh. Uh, when Jesus was crucified. Yeah. Uh, Jim, was... are you listening? Um, oh, Joseph Aaron. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. You can edit all this. <laughs> Joseph of Arimathea. I'm not sure he was a Pharisee or not, but listen, 
he was a wealthy Jewish man in that culture, and he was a believer. So I think that there, there, there are uh, certain obstacles. There's plenty of obstacles. Um, you know, there's anti-missionary organizations, most notably Jews for Judaism, who uh, are very good at being able to try to shake you up and to, what's the word, you know, bust up your belief and uh, try to show you evidence that he's not the Messiah, et cetera, and so forth. So it comes down again to faith, but at the same time, I think that a open-minded reading of the texts and, a, and a, certainly a detailed study further into the text in both the Hebrew and Greek Bibles will, br will bring you to a point, a crossroad, if you will. The crossroad is the question I asked earlier, is he or is he not who he says he is? My feelings are that even though people with very good objections and strong feelings against him, when they do that type of work, open-minded research, put the baggage down, and then you know understand how these uh, books were written, etc., they are going to come to a conclusion. And if they conclude he is not the Messiah, then they're lying to themselves. I believe that. I believe that they have to lie to themselves because it is just so overwhelmingly obvious that he is who he says he is if you just understand what the scripture says and take it without bringing in all the, you know, oh, the Nazis were singing Christmas carols when they sent the Jews into the concentration camp gas chambers. Yeah, that's I'm sure that's true. Pretty terrible, actually. What does that have to do with anything with your relationship with God and his Messiah? Nothing. There's nothing to do. You just have to put that aside. We'll address that later. And we can address it. That's where I stand on that particular position. I look at people who I love, who I've discussed this with, who absolutely positively will not hear about it because they are lying to themselves. They, there's so, they see the cost. You brought up the calculating of the cost. They think incorrectly that the cost of having this faith and being able to surrender themselves to this Messiah is so unimaginably great that they will not allow themselves a moment to think about it. I can't do anything with them other than pray. That's it. I don't know if that answered your question. But <laughs> no, no, it did. Very powerful. Yeah. Um, and so flip side, the other side of that, what would be your advice to someone like me or um, someone in that arena? Maybe like uh, my mom would also be a good example of this. Uh, and, and anyone in our group, actually. Um, sure. Someone who, a uh, Gentile believer, who starts to understand that, like I've come to understand that um, uh, this isn't a Jew versus Christian debate. Matter of fact, I think that's a very unhelpful framing of it. Um, I think you're right. And especially in the, in the <laughs> uh, Gentile world where it's like, oh, those Jews, they just don't get it. Like how would they not understand? Yeah. Right. And yeah. that's, that's, that's a right. complicated answer as we've just gone through with your right. story. That's right. Um, and so I think that there's been a lot of this like shrugging off of um, Jewishness, let's say, um, in the evangelical world. I'd say probably really since Luther, very heavily since yes. since Luther. Um, That's a special set of problems. Yeah. Right. Uh, and maybe we've talked about that a little bit on this podcast, uh, Reformation, but maybe we can have another debate about that at some point because I think it would be very interesting. And I would like to do more research. Um, but point being that, I, and I think this 
it's a good thing that this is happening. I think there's a very good resurgence or, uh, I don't, yeah, resurgence is maybe the best way to say it of, uh, Gentile Christians who now understand that, um, that wrestling thing, wrestling with things maybe in a more Jewish way or understanding the Jewishness and doesn't, like you said, that doesn't mean that I give up my relationship with Jesus. Matter of fact, it might even make it better, which is what I've experienced. Um, So I guess what would be your advice as, um, as someone who's Jewish to uh, somebody who's a, a Gentile kind of starting to, wrestle with and parse through um, maybe some new things that uh, that come up through conversations with, you know, Messianic Jews or, or even Jews in general um, who don't take Jesus as Messiah. Uh, like what would be your advice to them? Maybe something, a book you'd recommend or, or something like that to kind of help uh, help that area. Cause I think that there's, I think it's necessary, but I don't, I think a lot of people don't know where to start. Um, so to understand your question, question correctly, you're saying, so you as a Gentile believer may have the opportunity to talk to an unbelieving Jewish person and how would you break the ice? Or... No, no. Okay. Um, Let me get it straight. My, my question is more or less how as a Gentile believer, do I begin to understand the Jewishness of my faith and not feel like I am abandoning my Christianity Mm -hmm. for Judaism or feel like I, or even on the extreme case, feel like I have to become Jewish in some sense. Um, Because again, I think that dichotomy is largely unhelpful. I think I better understand that. Um, uh, That's actually also a very, very compelling question. there's probably no greater value in Judaism as a society or a civilization than learning. So that should be applied to everybody. We should all be striving to learn. The more we learn, the better we are. And the idea of being challenged or being confused is acceptable, very much so, because that makes you look harder. That makes you work more at getting to those answers. Um, Yes, I think we're living in a time where the uh, emergence of a scholarship school, messianic scholarship, let's call it, has become very much more acceptable in the Gentile scholarship circles. Mm-hmm. Yes, you brought, you brought up the new, um, new uh, perspective, the new perspective, and and lots of lots of stuff is coming out about that, with plenty of argumentation taking place, mm-hmm. and that's okay too. Um, so I think that, uh, of course, the more you learn and the more you understand the roots, the Jewish roots. And that goes to that, that goes into two major categories. First of all, there's why weren't you taught those in the first place? Mm-hmm. Because they were removed through the councils and through Constantine and others who wanted to gentilize this new faith and make it have nothing to do with Judaism, which was very tragic, really. But now we're beyond that. We're, we've matured as a society and culture uh, that we can say, okay, it's totally reasonable. Uh, to study the Jewish roots and try to see what we can glean from that in terms of our understanding of our faith. 
you know, and again, the historical uh, details of things like the Last Supper, I'll use an example. You know, a very, very serious event uh, that not only was a big part of the course of, you know, Christendom as we understand it, but also it was also the beginning of the institution of a rite, of a new ritual, which really wasn't a new ritual because mm -hmm. it came out of a Jewish roots yeah. place. So understanding that changes our, you know, dynamic when it comes to realizing what he was saying. You know, I mean, in the case of that, we could talk about a, se a separate discussion, but um, I think that, uh, um, uh, you know, learning about what Passover was to the Jewish people then, what it is now, what it was like in his time, how is it different, how is it similar, just expands your knowledge base. And if you are going to encounter an unbelieving Jewish person, you now have information that you can discuss this with them on a level that they don't necessarily withdraw from or become offended by, you know, that kind of thing. And again, that's another discussion. I think that was the other misunderstanding of your question that I was drawing to, uh, allusion to. But um, I don't think that there's anything better than just taking the time to learn and with the abundant amount of information that's readily available at our fingertips today with things like the internet and with, you know, uh, electronic media for books and for videos and you name it, CD, uh, DVDs, etc. There's just a ton of material out there on the Jewish roots. Have to be careful, uh, obviously, to use discernment like anything else because there's nonsense out there too, but there's also good stuff. You asked about a specific book. I, I recommend um, uh, people uh, reading and studying the works of a gentleman whose name is Daniel Stern. Now, uh, Dr. Stern is still alive. He's quite elderly. He lives in Jerusalem. Uh, he was an economist by training. So he had a lot of, you know, very significant education, you can imagine. And uh, anyway, was a, became a Jewish believer and then decided that he wanted to, quote, restore the Jewishness to the Gospels. And in so doing, he produced a book called Restoring the Jewishness to the Gospels. And it's worth reading. He also has a book that was titled messianic manifesto messianic judaism or something manifesto it's the name has been recently changed to a different but it's easy to find out on the internet what it is but he is extremely good at being able to explain where the where the, the schisms were you know how can we try to uh, uh bridge those gaps between the cultures and uh be able to discuss and, and build bridges instead of walls basically and not only stern with those books, he also undertook incredible uh, 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 scholarly effort by producing the complete Jewish Bible. And this is, again, a, a uh, Greek and Hebrew Bible that is de-Gentilized. The names, for example, of the, of the uh, people in the New Testament are given their original Hebrew names. So John would be called Yohanan, and Matthew would be Matityahu. Does that make any big difference? Well, it might make a difference to a Jewish person. You know what I'm saying? So he wrote that, and then he wrote a commentary on the Jewish New Testament, which is just invaluable. It's phenomenal. And that is a very important uh, resource also, because you can read something out of a classic Bible that gives an explanation in a footnote, and then you can see what his footnote says. And maybe they're similar, or maybe he agrees that that's one interpretation versus another interpretation. And it just broadens your knowledge. Uh, there's another scholar who's uh, named Stuart Dowerman, D-A-U-E-R-M-A-N-N. -N. And Stuart is uh, 
a Jewish believer that came up in the Jews for Jesus movement uh, back in the 70s, in the early days when Jews for Jesus first started. He was a musician, so he was involved with their uh, singing and uh, performing troupe, which was called the Liberated Wailing Wall, and they still exist. <laughs> and Stuart went on to develop more scholarship, more education, and then now has become quite a spokesman, I should say, among Messianic scholars for his biggest goal, and that is, like I said, building bridges between the Judaism, the Messianic Judaism and Christianity to what are they, you know, what do they have in common? Where do they have differences? What can we do to reconcile certain things? And uh, he's written extensively on that. And uh, if, you, if you're a Facebook person, I would follow him on Facebook. He's very, very interesting. And uh, he, he, you know, he's, he's controversial and he riles people up and he gets all kinds of crazy comments, but he's very, very worth exploring. And, he, and these are just a few people. There's many other, you know, I could name names, you know, of people in the scholarship, uh, academic scholarship world of, Jude of Messianic Judaism. Um, uh, there's, uh, there's a journal, a Messianic journal called Kesher, which is similar to the word kosher. And um, these are very scholarly, peer-reviewed articles, etc. Um, the Messianic uh, theologians now have well organized into a number of different groups that have internet websites with articles and videos. There's plenty of material out there. It's just very, very. And of course, uh, you know, in, in typical fashion, the, the old joke about asking Jews for opinions, you know, if you ask uh, three Jews for an opinion, you get nine answers, you know. And so in the messianic circles, uh, surprise, surprise, they disagree with each other. And what do they do? They branch off. You know, they're this way or that way, or Torah observant or not Torah observant, whatever it is. And, um, but we can still learn from that. We can still, uh, um, find comfort, find a place that's comfortable for us in the midst of these differing opinions. Um, you know, from a, a, a believer like myself, looking at Christianity from the outside as an outsider for many, many years, my, my main observation was that Christian Gentile people were arguing about inconsequential stuff how to get baptized, how to do this, how to do that, how many days do you count before Christmas and, you know, whatever. That's all I could see. So then I become a member of the tribe, so to speak, in that respect. And I get into being a believer, a Christian, a Jewish believer. And now that I'm on the inside, I make another observation. All we do is fight about nonsense. <laughs> Nothing's different. You know what I'm saying? Same thing with the Jewish believer. Dispense with that. I think they're trying to get them They'll all talk to each other, and and not because they have to have a unified voice, but because we just have to set aside certain things that aren't worth fighting about. That's all. And then what is the essential goal of anybody that believes in Jesus in terms of their personal responsibility? And that is to go and make disciples. And that may be either by witnessing or by your behavior or by donating to missionaries or whatever it is. There's a lot of ways to do it. But that's our main responsibility, and not fight with each other about how you get baptized, et cetera. Did that help? Did that answer your question? Yes, that's great. All right, well, no better place to end it, I guess. I appreciate this. Mm -hmm. Very very nice of you to, to think of me, and um, I hope you edited 45%, 50% of it. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's good. It's I'm great. Kidding. And I definitely, definitely hope to have you again. I hope so. I appreciate um, it.
Yeah. So this has been the Belfast podcast. I'm your host, Luke Byler. You can find the Belfast podcast on Instagram and on Facebook at the Belfast podcast. You can email us at belfastpodcast@gmail.com, and uh, please give us a rate and a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Know what they own, what they about, and I ain't got time. Listen, they always mean well. They always say there's more to it. Look at the details. They always say they going through it. Life is a female dog. That would be me. She said, "Let's go to Hong Kong," but I'm only 18. Ain't got money for Hong Kong. If she'd have asked me last year.